This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorn has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter and fellow podcaster Stack. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his early life working with special needs children, his own mental health journey, his entry into the fire service, psychedelics, mentorship, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Stack. Well, Stack, I want to start by firstly thanking you for being very flexible today. We've bounced around times and dates and all kinds of things. Secondly, the last time I saw you, you came to my house and I was a guest on your show. Um, so I want to welcome you onto my show, the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I'm in a little town called Culpeper, Virginia. And I guess you could say... It's Nova, as in Northern Virginia, but it's kind of Northern Central Virginia now. So um, it's about an hour south of D.C. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. We talked about quite a lot when I was on your show. but um, So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Uh, born in Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, way back when. Uh, spent about two years there. Uh, dad was kind of working as a pseudo engineer kind of for the, for the city and, and for the, the county in, in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly, um, got it, got on with Northrop Grumman. So we moved to Maryland and when I was two ish, uh, spent a few, few years there, left Maryland. I think it was end of fourth grade, early fifth grade when we left Maryland, moved to Florida, uh, grew up just outside of Orlando. Mom and dad split. When we were in, or well, they had split a couple times before, um, but they split for the final time in when we lived in a little town called Maitland, Florida. And that was, I think, they probably split in 1980, 81. I'm not sure. I don't remember when. Kind of cloudy. Uh, so it's my mom, my two sisters, and that's predominantly who I grew up with. And my two older sisters. Beautiful. All right. So then you went back up to Virginia after that. No, it was a circuitous route. I graduated high school in Florida, um, and then I joined the Army, spent a couple of years in the Army. I met my now, unfortunately, my now ex-wife. Who, uh, we spent about 30 years together. She's, she, did a, she did a full career in the military. I got out because I, I destroyed my ankle, and I, they put me out on a disability. Um, so we traveled around a little bit while we went to different assignments for her. So was, the timeline looks a little like Florida to Texas to Virginia, to Kentucky, to Colorado, 
to Germany, to Kansas, to Germany, to Virginia. Brilliant. Well, when so, you when you look back at your childhood, I want to kind of walk you through your timeline and we'll hit some of those yeah, areas. However, of course. And a, this obviously is, is yeah, the mental health discussion is something that you're very passionate about to the point where you started your own podcast. When you look back now, one I think one of the least recognized elements of trauma um, in the fire service or in the military is what happened to us before we ever put our uniform on. Mm-hmm. When you look back, are there any elements just because you bounced around just because there was a divorce doesn't mean it was horrendous. But when you look back now with adult eyes, are there any areas you identify that would be compounding elements to something that happened later? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think my eyes have been opened a little bit more because it was uh, mid last year when I finally started and got into therapy for myself. I denied it for a very long time. Um, I just thought I, I didn't need it. It's a typical thing that we all go through. You know, we don't need this. I don't need it. Uh, I'm better than that, quote unquote, and where I don't want to admit that I need some help. So I had some friends come to me and say, hey, you know, coworkers and said, hey, wait a second there's something going on. Let, let, let me give you a name. And so I went to a resource that my fire department has, and it's called the resilience center. And I started talking to a therapist and she did make, she made me aware of some things that I didn't even recognize were from childhood. Obviously I went through the the trauma with my, with my parents getting divorced. Um, and I blamed a lot of that on my dad. So that, that developed a, a relationship pattern and a, an a interpersonal pattern that I've carried through for my whole life. And it's, it's trying to break a pattern now that, that seems at times it seems impossible. And at, at other times it seems ridiculous. Um, and so I do recognize that is something that's affected me throughout the, the 10 years I've been a firefighter and some of the time leading up to that, especially through my marriage. So going to your childhood again, um, you ended up obviously joining the military and then the fire service, both very physical professions. What were you doing as far as sports and athletics back then? <laughs> well, if you can call uh, skipping school, going to the beach and drinking sports and athletics, I was I was into sports and athletics. I was a I was a I was a for lack of a better term, I was a shit kid. Um, I, I reacted very negatively. I was angry. I was um I had access to the beach. I mean, I, I was 45 minutes from the beach. And, and once I got the ability to just go on my own, I went on my own. And I went on my own well before I had the ability to go on my own. I um, Middle school, I think, was the first time that I just said, hey, I'm going to the beach with so-and-so. He said he was going to the beach with me. And we just got there, and we didn't know what we were going to do for a week. We didn't have a place to stay. We didn't have food. We didn't have money. We just kind of we we're going to figure it out on our own. And we did it for a few days until, the, until parents caught up with us. And um, and it was that way all the way through high school. Um, it was bad enough that, I, you know, I, like I said, I was very angry, got lots of drinking, lots of, not lots of drugs, but lots of, I smoked, I smoked a good bit of pot in, in high school, but a lot of drinking and just a lot of acting out, um, to the point where in my senior year, I don't know how many, there was, it probably was measured in days left before graduation. And my mom gets a call and says, he's not graduating. Because I didn't have enough credits, I did. I had I had failed so much, and she's she, uh, pardon my language, she's like fuck the fuck he's not graduating, and and she she forced me to finish as much school as I could, so at least I could get a, an average good enough to graduate, and and that was more for her sanity than than anything I believe. So again, you talked about going to the counselor. What do you think caused you to to kind of um, follow this path? I mean, you could look at it from one perspective is, is very positive you found independence and you know you had courage to go to the beach on your own when you were quite young <laughs> however yeah. one could also argue that maybe there was a little self-destructive element going on too oh it was a good deal of self-destructive um 
it was probably predominantly self-destructive. It, it wasn't, there was no, there was no branching out on my own. It was, it was totally what kind of pain can I cause either to myself or to, to anybody around me. And, um, it was something that I had to deal with as I, as I, as I got older into my twenties, I, I kind of started to figure out, okay, wait, there's no reason for this anger. You can, you got to start working on some things and find outlets. You know, um, I didn't have outlets. I didn't find the, the healthy outlets in high school or middle school. Um, and I've talked about it before on, on my show. I, um, I'm not proud of my childhood. I, I started drinking. I started drinking in fifth grade, end of, end of school party in fifth grade. And we found beer at a, at a tennis club and I started drinking. And, uh, it's been, it's been part of my life since then. Um, I don't, I don't drink heavily now. I'll have a drink or two every once in a while, but that's it. But I was go, I went through some periods where I drank very heavily and I had to find some coping mechanisms that were a lot healthier. Um, so it was, it was a rambunctious, rebellious few years as a kid. So what do you identify as the, the nucleus of that though? What, what was causing that pain that you were trying to bury with those in unhealthy oh, mechanisms? I, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to identify it before therapy. And then uh, my therapist, she, you know, she works you through it. And, and if, if finally it's like the light bulb came on. I was like, oh, I was a, I, I felt like I was abandoned as a kid. Like I wasn't good enough from, from, from my dad. Um, and that caused just a huge buildup of anger. Um, was, example, we were joking about this Star Wars movie, one of the new Star Wars movies at work the other day. And uh, I said, well, I'm old enough to remember when Star Wars came out in the theater. And they said, oh, did you see it? And I said, yeah, I saw it like eight or nine times. And I was supposed to see it with my dad each time because my mom would drop me off to go watch this movie with him. And sometimes he wouldn't even show up. Sometimes he'd show up about an hour into the movie. And it was just like, it was a very obvious, um, he had better things to do than to be bothered with, with me. And so that is definitely where that anger comes from is watching that, watching what he put me through, watching what put my mom through, what he put my sisters through. Um, I don't want to blame it all on that because I think that's too easy. And I just think that in some cases I was, like I said, kind of a shit kid. And I just, I, 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 I latched onto a reason. So what about career aspirations? You're, you're obviously kind of living a pseudo beach bum life. And, you know, again, you've got mm -hmm. the unhealthy coping mechanisms. But did you have a kind of burning desire under there of what you wanted to do when you graduated? No. And I think that was the problem. I didn't have a desire. I knew that I needed to do something. I knew I could, even though I had crappy grades, I could probably get into a, a junior college and move my way into the to University of Florida or something like that. But I knew I'd also probably kill myself in the sense of I would I would I would hurt myself somehow through parties, through whatever, uh, drunk driving, whatever you want. So I knew I had I needed something. So I latched onto the military as a way to to escape and and and, and a way to, to gain some discipline. So I joined the Army uh, straight out of high school, uh, graduated in May and that was in Fort Bliss, Texas for for uh, for recruit school at I think July 15th. So it was about a month and a half after graduation. So with that kind of wayward childhood, what was your experience through the military where you don't get to do what you want anymore? It was eye-opening, actually. Um, but I think with anybody anybody like that who has those some kind of, a, and I'll, say, I'll call them behavioral issues, I think I went undiagnosed with some ADHD in there. And I, I still think that to, to, to this day. Um, I think that the the regimen really set me up for some success as I as I went through life. It taught me, okay, you can discipline yourself. You can you can you can focus. Uh, 
I didn't rebel against that, that, that kind of discipline and regimen. I actually, I think I thrived on it because I found that when I set out to do what I wanted to do, it worked well. So when I got into the medical corps, it was, it was basically a glorified medic, but I, but I loved it. I enjoyed it and it, it, it was interesting and I thrived at it. And so I think I was challenged, which I didn't ever feel challenged in, in high school or middle school before. Did you meet anyone that you would consider a mentor in the military? Because it seems to me you've got two two kind of roads from people that I think that ultimately are successful. You've got ones that were very fortunate that had great family, great community, and it was kind of a straight line somewhat. Then you have a lot of people on here that had all kinds of, excuse me, all kinds of horrific childhoods. But there was a person, a, a female mm-hmm. teacher, a male coach, you know, whatever it was. There was a there was a human being that actually gave a shit, and all of a sudden, that child's life or that teenager's life took a turn for the positive. And it may have even been later in life. When you enter something like the military, would assume that if you hadn't found that by that point, maybe within that organization there was some figures that you kind of realize, okay, this is actually someone who maybe was even the father figure that I never had that I want to be like now, or, or has put me on that right path. It was interesting. I, I, I you would think that that's what would happen. I mean, you had drill sergeants who who kind of knocked the, the knocked the sense out of you and, and built you back up. But I wouldn't have considered any of those people I met in the military as mentors. Um, and again, I only spent I was spent three years before I injured myself and, and I got found my way back out of the military. So there was a very short. It was a brief career in the military. And I don't think I can identify a mentor in the military. Uh, I don't know if I had a mentor until I, I probably came back to Virginia after a second trip to Germany. And I, and I started working with kids with autism. And then I found somebody who who the way he worked with passion and the way he worked with uh, with families and kids, it just, it, it struck me, it struck me as, okay, that's someone I can, I can kind of pattern myself after. So walk me through the injury and then, and then let's get to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about this incredible human that you did meet. The, the injury was, was just me being stupid at 19. <laughs> we went out on a, a Labor Day weekend and it was uh, 1989 Labor Day weekend. And we went, we went climbing and repelling. I had a buddy who was air assault. And so he, he would do all the rigging for us and we would just go repelling on weekends. It was in Fort Knox, Kentucky in the little hills in Kentucky there. Um, I decided because I was stupid that I could climb that, that, that rock face without any, without any rope or any security. Um, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't clip in or anything. I just, I free climbed and I got to the top. It was, it was only about a 30 foot rock face. And I got to the top and, and uh, my chest hit the rock face and I went backwards and I landed on right foot, left foot head. And I went to get up and my right foot, was on the looked about like that ankle to foot um and next thing you know it's 30 days in a hospital a couple of months in a cast pin screws all of it um uh, and then they at that time they were saying well we don't think you can, you can run enough to do the pt test and so they put me out with a uh, with a disability it was a small stipend uh, uh and from there like i said i went back to florida re, kind of recovered and then i met who is now well my wife at she was my girlfriend at the time, became my wife, ex-wife now, that um, I met her in Colorado, and then that's where we started the journey. Now you mentioned about the uh, the gentleman working with autistic children. Was that pre-fire service? Yes. Uh, we moved When we moved back to Virginia, or we moved to Virginia in 2002, um, again, it's it's weird. I, I had this I had this opportunity to, to see life from the military from a different standpoint than, than men would normally see it. Cause my wife was active duty and, and I was, 
I was the spouse kind of following her around from, from post to post. Um, so I, it doesn't allow to have a real career at, when you're doing that because you, you're moving so often. Uh, so when we got to Virginia. It was going to be our last duty post. So it, it was time to find something for me. Um, and so I, I had gone to school at Kansas State when we were at Kansas and I had a degree, my degrees in sociology, criminal justice. So I was looking for something to do with it. I got in working with teenagers, adolescents with addiction problems and uh, moved into a, to a program that, or school that works with autistic kids. Uh, that What we did was we, we took the worst of the worst, which I can't I, I hate that term, but their behaviors were over the top. The schools were done with them. This was their last chance. We we took those behaviors, those kids, and we studied them, and we modified those behaviors so they could live and 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 work, or live and go to school, and their families could could have them at home. But the gentleman who founded that school and ran it, his name is Alan El Taji, and his school is called Alternative Past Training School, and it's it was started as a small school in Alexandria, Virginia, and I got on in that with that staff early on in their school in their system. And kind of just learned the ways, his ways of dealing with these kids and dealing with life. And it was just interesting to see someone, like you said, from that male standpoint to me, who was, who said, wait, you can do something and, and, I, and I have faith in you and I trust that you can do this job. And he just built me up to that spot where, okay, now I, I realized that there was some in, innate ability there that I could just apply to this, to this, to this setting. So there's usually takeaways. That's what I love about interviewing people. Obviously, we're both firefighters, but so many people on the show have been in totally different professions. But so many of these areas, there are takeaways that apply to, to everyone. Now, you're working with probably you know, more severely autistic on, on the spectrum, especially with the, the background as well. What were some of the, the truths, some of the principles that applied to the children that you work with that would apply to anyone else as well? Uh, patience is a wonderful thing. You know, just uh, just making sure that people know that, OK, he's here. He's to- he's not told me he's asked me something. He's he's going to stick by what he's said and what he's asked. He's not going to back down from it. And it was a matter of um, just proving that I wasn't going anywhere for them, that like, I was going to ask them to do something. But I was also going to do for them what I said I would do. Uh, they, these guys, guys and girls that I worked with had no idea how to to even just ask for things or to say, Hey, I'm hurt or to, to sit down at a desk without getting mad and without getting violent. Um, and it was, it was, it took sometimes someone stubborn enough to just stand toe to toe with them and, and let them know that, no, we're not, we're not going away. We're going to work on this and we're going to get through it. And so it's a bit of, I was tenacity, but it's probably stubbornness more than anything. Now, flipping it around for a second, for the responders out there, I've had a few guests on that have you know autism in their family, for example, and now mm-hmm. they actually do presentations for our professions. What are some of the things that you would advise a firefighter or a paramedic or a police officer listening when it comes to a young boy or girl or young man or woman even um, with autism on the spectrum that you saw? It's just, this is ironic because this came up at work, I don't know, a few months ago, and I actually got pretty angry because there was a... Uh, there was a teenage girl. I think she was 14. And it was a different crew. Um, there was a fire alarm at a hotel and this girl didn't react well to the lights and the, and the, and the sounds, which is a hallmark of autism. And, and um, somebody called her over. So this girl's having trouble. She needs some help. And so a medic crew went over there and they put her in the back of their unit. Um, 
And out of one of the things that autistic kids would do, especially at that point, is they'll, they'll do some self-injurious behavior. So they'll maybe bang their heads or, or bite a little bit. And it's just a way of saying, hey, something's, something's wrong. And they're not trying to hurt themselves. They're just trying to let you know something's going on. Um, this crew didn't know what was going on, and they reacted very negatively to it. It was, it was a matter of they tried to stop it. Once they try to stop it, it escalates. And then once it escalates, they, they were like, well, what do we do here? She's fighting us, and she's going to hurt herself. And they, they panicked, and so then they get orders to restrain her. As a 14-year-old autistic girl, she doesn't need to be restrained. She just needs to have some time and space and maybe lower your lights and, and lower the, the, the uh, compartment lights and just let her kind of calm down. Uh, but it ended up escalating to the point where they did they did restrain her to the to the stretcher. They took her to the hospital. They get her to the hospital and they they let her go too soon. And she reacts again and starts fighting the doctors and nurses and and the the EMS crew. Literally get her on the floor and they pin her down on the floor and she's she escalates even further. And the father walks in and says, Whoa, 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 hold on. She's been raped. And, uh, and so now this 14-year-old girl doesn't understand she's autistic. She doesn't understand what's going on. She remembers being raped and being held down, is now being held down by four, five, six grown adults. And so it just escalated to a point where they couldn't control the situation. When if you just if you just know a little bit about a special needs population, you can take a step back and go, okay, that's that's a little piece of it. So let's see what happens. Let's not react too much to it. So um, a lot of that stuff is for a reaction. So if the if if you see someone bite themselves or hit themselves, if if you withdraw a reaction, it's usually not going to escalate. And it'll stop that behavior anyway because they don't get anything for it. They don't get rewarded for their behavior. Um, and I think recognizing little things like that, maybe taking a couple of classes on autism and, and especially those those the further on the spectrum autistic, then it, it would be valuable to understand those behaviors for first responders. It's there's the problem with autism. It, the behaviors can be so nuanced that sometimes you don't even pick up on them. You know, it could be a matter of, of lack of eye contact or just awkwardness in social set, settings. And it's just knowing that they, they don't want to be touched. Or they don't they don't like the sensation of the light. They don't like the sensation of the noise. So it's it's adjusting to, to what they react to. Well, it was so you know important for us to hear all these different perspectives. And, you know, when you've got whether it's yourself that's worked in that community, whether it's some of the guests that have got, you know, a son or a brother that's autistic, it kind of you look at the way we are and yes yeah, sometimes especially if you take that more burnt out crew there's been a couple of uh stories that came across my wife just played a dispatch tape of a woman who was saying that she was stuck in some sort of you know fast water she'd driven into and the dispatcher chastised her and the woman ends up drowning and then another mm. medic crew i think is a paramedic and emt just strapped a dude to a, a stretcher who was um coming off um you know, withdrawals from alcohol strapped him down right. face down and he had a cardiac arrest and died yeah so you know you already have that in our profession where you know that arguably we're overworked underpaid and you know our mental health is diminishing and then you bring in someone with down syndrome or autism it can create mm -hmm. this perfect storm and sadly in law enforcement especially we see some of these shootings with simply someone who was special needs at that moment yes. was being misunderstood yeah and and that is a shame because like you said they don't it could just be a matter of they just don't understand. They don't have the connection to understand the direction you gave. And then, like you said, it escalates to being strapped down upside down or excuse me, face down on a, on a stretcher or or unfortunately being shot or tased by, by a police officer. Um, and there's 
that training is out there and, and it's, it's, it's valuable. It's important. I would, I would urge every first responder to take some sort of training on that so they can recognize some of the hallmarks of these, of the, the, the kids and adults with autism or down syndrome or any of those, those, um, you know, childhood, I don't know. What, what's the word? I'm like some genetic uh, deficiencies, put it that way. And that's a terrible term. And I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Developmental challenges, I guess might be another yeah. way. Yeah, it's it's it's, I've, it's been ten years since I worked with with that population, and so I think things have changed so much that it's hard for me to like. I worked years and years with them. I would say I'm I'm somewhat of I had some expertise in it, but I would never call myself an expert anymore for it. I think I just I just you. It's like the uh, it's like the Supreme Court ruling on pornography. You know it when you see it. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about, you know, being a military husband, as it were, um, and that mm -hmm. affecting your ability to kind of solidify a career. What were some of the other jobs that you worked before you found an actual career? I did a lot. I mean, a lot with special needs, a lot with kids. Uh, it was in Colorado. I worked with special needs. It was group homes. So the parents had surrendered the kids to group homes because they just they either couldn't handle them or didn't want to handle them. And so we, we ran group homes. Uh, got to Germany and I worked in a grocery store, worked at the commissary on post, um, got to Kansas and I went to school when I was in Kansas. I went to Kansas State University. After school in Kansas, I started working as a case manager, working with kids who are involved in the legal system. So maybe they've had some abuse in their family and, and so they've been taken, they were removed from the family or they're in the juvenile system themselves for crimes they committed. And so they were in a, they were in a, let's say halfway house for lack of a better term. And it's working their cases, uh, making sure that they get some socialization, making sure that they get to some therapy programs. Um, we, I did that until we left for Germany again. And then when I got to Germany for the second time, I ran a youth sports league. So we, we ran, um, the on post sports for kids. So soccer, football, no, excuse me, not football, soccer, baseball, basketball, anything that the kids wanted to play. We, we handled that for them. Uh, we ran the sports league there. Then I came to, to, uh, Virginia and that's where I started working with the autistic kids as well. Um, and then did that up until the point where I joined the fire service. My kids were old enough to where I could make a career change or I could find a career actually. Um, uh, and, I just decided it was something that interests me. I mentioned I had been in the medical corps and army and I knew I wanted to do something related to that. I was 44 when I joined the, the fire service. And so I knew it was now or it was then or never at that point. So just before we go into the fire service, when you hear discussions, for example, you know, the, the officer involved shootings and, you know, this mm -hmm. whole kind of betrayal of this narrative that a police officer wakes up in the morning, hoping they're going to get to kill someone that day. You, you and then with a gun conversation as well the one piece of the puzzle that's left out is this multi-generational trauma what are we doing in the yes. united states that's creating such violence on our streets violence in our schools etc cetera, etc cetera. you have this this uh incredible lens with the special needs community with the group homes what do you see especially as you, you know, went through some some struggles yourself as a child what are some of the common denominators that you think, if if any, are creating some of these ch troubled children who then in turn are kind of mirroring the same behavior? And this is obviously coming from a very lay person standpoint, whatever I say here, and, and some of it might be complete bullshit, but it's, it's what I see. Um, obviously, there's a socioeconomic element to it. Um, 
sometimes if you just don't see a way out, what's, what's the point? You don't see a way out of whatever situation you're raised in. What's the point? And so there's kind of a to hell with it kind of attitude. Um, also, quite blatantly, there's a there's uh, parentless homes, fatherless homes, motherless homes. Uh, you know, divorce happens, but you can handle that. You can handle that better than not. So if you if both parents are still involved with kids, you're, you're, you might have a, a single mom home, but you still dad's still present in the child's life. A lot of these, a lot of these kids that you see, especially myself, dad really wasn't present in life, and so there's not that 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 father figure to kind of guide you through through that through the trials and tribulations. And so you learn to react to those trials and tribulations on your own, and normally you learn to react in a in an inappropriate manner. Um, and so I think that's that's probably the key part there. Is 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 now I know you're not going to keep a family intact just to keep a family intact, but there still can be a, a, a father figure, even though there's a divorce. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, my little boy's here now I'm divorced, you know, and there's two households, but I think that's, that's the thing is you can't control whether that relationship is supposed to continue, especially if there's infidelity or violence or some of these other things that guarantee you're not going to be with that person anymore. Right. However, they can still be a mother or a father. It's just, you know, that co-parenting, yes. it, it's hard. It really is. And, and it breaks my heart for the child to have to go from, from house to house as well. But, What's the alternative? Not being there at all. Not being there at all, or you, you like it's like we mentioned. Do you, do you just stay in a marriage that that's not working? And that's that can be just as harmful. And I've seen that. On the other hand, you just don't you don't learn that communication process, that style that's appropriate for a relationship, that or a proper modeling of what love actually is within a in a marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a key thing as well. I mean, that's I think ultimately the goal for parents you know whether they're divorced and find someone else is alt is you are tr showing your daughter or your son this is how you love a woman or this is how you love a man and i think that's the opposite of what we talked about that's how you break this cycle is that you have to walk the walk yourself in your own relationship that your your children are watching right and i think that's very important it goes back to that mentor that model that you find in life and and hopefully at some age in adolescence every every boy or girl has a mentor that they can look to and say, that's what I want to live like. And it's, and it's, and it's an appropriate mentor. Absolutely. Well, that's the other part of the conversation. There's a lot of people, I think that sit in a chair and point their fingers at what's wrong with the world. And they don't realize that firstly, obviously you have to make sure that your own home is healthy, but then you've got to step outside your front door and see, okay, in my community, how can I help? And you, you know, maybe as a right. firefighter, maybe as a, you know, a sports coach, it may be as a chess instructor, you know, whatever it is, you know, just, I mean, there's, there's a guy I had on the show quite a while ago now who inspires kids to, to help cut neighbors lawns for free, elderly neighbors, veterans, etc. And he's, right. he's one guy, I think he was in, I think it's Alabama where he's based, if I got that right. But I mean, there's children all over the, the story. Yeah. Over the world, around the world, Rodney right. Smith. So yeah, I mean, if he can do that and inspire children in different countries, we sure as shit can do it in our own community. Well, it's interesting you say that because you never know when you're going to impact the child's life. Um, I mentioned the the sports league in Germany, as well as running the league. We I also coached every season, and because my son was playing, my daughter was playing, so I, I I would coach those teams. And I had a friend of mine who he 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 and I coached together. And if if he was stronger in one sport, then he would take the lead. And then if I was stronger in the other sport, I would take the lead. But the two of us always coached, and my son always played for us. 
my his son always played for us. My daughter played for us. And, you know, we did that for three years. Come down to, you know, 2000. I forgot. My son's going to kill me because I can't remember what year he got married. But come down to my son getting married. And he I he says, I'm going to invite a few a few people, a, a few friends of yours. And I said, OK, who? And he, one he mentioned was that gentleman that coached for me in Germany. This would have been when, when my son was in grade school and now he's an adult getting married. But he had that impact on his life at that point in time that lasted all the way through. And that's you just never know when you're going to make that difference in a child's life. And it's it's well worth it. Absolutely. Well, walk me through then. You, you mentioned about how you had the medical background and the fire service seemed like a good idea, but you're also 44. <laughs> so kind of walk me through yeah. what really made you make that decision and what was the uh, kind of on-ramp academy experience like for you? So I had a buddy who worked in the school with me, and he joined the fire department uh, two and a half, three years before I did. Not two years before I did. And we were having a conversation one day, and I said, I'm thinking about doing this. And he said, well, well just put in your application. And I said, I said I'm not going to get hired. I mean, you, there's, there's at the time, it was still at that height of hiring where we had 3,000, 3,500 people for, for 30 jobs, right? And he said, "Oh, just put it in." He said, "He said old is a disability." Was a joke he made to me. And I said, so, "Okay, so I'll throw it in there." So I threw in my application, and 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 I interviewed with a couple spots, and then the the department I'm with now is the one that I ultimately went with, and uh, it was it was it was interesting. I expected more of a military approach to to the training. Uh, it was it was definitely more of the para than the military. Um, so I, I found that the physical aspect and the mental aspect of 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 the academy was not a was not as much a challenge as I thought it was going to be. Still challenged me because I was still learning that new a new career and a new a new position and and you know learning the the gear and learning the the lingo and and everything. I it was brand new to me. I had no fire experience, so it was fascinating. It was interesting, but I, the challenge itself wasn't as physical as I thought it was going to be. And maybe that's just a testament to the work we you you put in prior to the academy. Now, what were the pros and what were the cons of not only being forty four, but being a forty four year old man who's navigated the path you had up to that point? I think the pro is I I knew when to keep my mouth shut, when to lay low. Uh, the con is is I have an ankle that's frozen in place. And there's a lot of running in the academy and it takes a lot of recovery to get over what abuse I put my body through, you know, on the road or running, running the stairs on the burn, burn building or whatever. It, it physically did wear me out. It just wasn't, it wasn't as demanding as I thought it was going to be. It still wore me out. It was still very effective. And I came home every day with aches and pains. Um, the 20 year old recruits that were in class with me, definitely had a little bit of an advantage being able to recover a little bit quicker. Uh, so I had to be smart about my recovery. So then I know you end up on a rescue company. So walk me through, you know, your kind of uh, not promotional ladder, but your, you, the, the path that you wanted to take within the fire service and any kind of career calls that you might have had in the last 10 years or so. It's funny. I, I didn't have a path necessarily I wanted to take because I didn't know what to expect when I joined the fire service. And I had a buddy who had had worked in a different department who was in my classroom. And he asked, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to ride when you get out? And I was like, first of all, I have no idea. I don't even know what these positions are. So I'm learning them. So I, I want to get out there and I want to do what I can do and then see where I'll go. So uh, the way we work is 
well, the way we well, we still work this way, actually. The way we work is you you graduate your academy after six months. You're assigned to an engine company, and you spend at least a year on that engine company as a rookie. Um, I got to a I got to a an engine company at the time that was day work. So we worked four days a week, and we had a rotating day off, and we did work twelve hour days. Um, I know my first day on the engine company, I, I, I was like, well, this is, this is, this is interesting. It's fascinating because there's so much to learn again once you come out of the academy. Um, had a couple of interesting calls right off the bat. Five o'clock that first day, we're sitting in the bay. And uh, my buddy, who's now a good friend of mine, says to me, he says, uh, it's windy outside. This is when you, know, we, you can get good fire. And I was like, okay. You know, I didn't think anything of it. And then someone comes running out to the bay and says, yells a 14 box house fire and I happen to be an engine 14. And so I get dressed, we get rolling down the road, make a turn and there's this massive header. And I was just like, Oh, this shit is real. Okay. This is, this is it. This is the real thing. And it was, there he is two alarm house fire on my first day as a rookie, which it's in some houses, that's probably the pinnacle of what you're going to see in a career. And it's going to go down from there in these smaller, in these smaller departments. Um, but that was my taste. That was my first day and my first taste of the real fire service. And and at that moment, you know, it, you kind of get hooked on that feeling. And you know, you've been into a house fire. You know what that feeling is when you when you go into that house fire. You're just like, yeah, that this is me. I'm doing that. Uh, and so that was my first day on engine 14. I spent about 18 months on that engine. Um, we get detailed out quite a bit to neighboring stations. And one of the ways to get recognized is to. To, when you're on those details to just do your job and we happened to do our job and a little bit better than our job every time we got detailed and when it came around time that they were looking for somebody to join the truck company we got a, i got a call saying hey we want you to come here and, and work on the truck and of course i jumped at it because it's it's it was a busy house it was a good truck and it was a technical rescue truck so i got to go to the schooling for the technical rescue as well um, i spent about again, about 18 months on that truck before I promoted and had to go back to an engine company and then found my way to another truck after that and then got to the rescue after after that truck company. Now, what's the EMS dynamic with your department? Uh, we're all BLS. And then we have medics, but everyone's at least a BLS. So we, everyone's at least EMT. Uh, <clears throat> so we run, it's a combined, so we run medical calls and fire calls. So you had that fire on your first shift were there any kind of notable calls that um, either were just, you know, story worthy or maybe compounding into what you started addressing later? I think the suicides get me. And that's what I start. Those are the ones, any children, any calls with children, any call with suicide are the ones that, that weigh, weigh on me. And that's just a personal reaction to calls. Um, there was an 18 month old. Um, it was when I was on the truck 23, the first truck I was on. There was an 18 month old that we got called to for a stoppage of breathing and we roll up and we get there. And it's like I said, it's an 18 month old baby laying on the floor in the entryway to an apartment. And uh, I remember working the kid and I look up and I see dad's face and dad's looking down dispassionately. He's got an empty glaze on his face, no emotion whatsoever. And with my study of human behavior, because my, my schooling was in, in human behavior, my, my master's is in human behavior. But with that study of human behavior, I looked at him and I went, it clicked in that moment. It's like, oh, wait a second. You don't give a shit. There's something wrong here. You don't care because everyone else is freaked out and panicked. And, and he's just, he was cold. It was, it was emotionless. Turns out he had, he had abused the kid and a kid had died because of his abuse. 
Um, and so is it, it, it's those calls. You just, you see the worst in humanity at that moment. Uh, and then, and I'd say suicides, but for me, it's the hangings. Uh, for some reason, I've, I've, I've run a lot of hangings. Um, so it's, it's, it's rolling up to a scene, searching for a body and then finding that waxy face and it, that waxy face, that lifelike, but pasty waxy face sticks with me for some reason. And those, those are the toughest ones for me to shake from my memory. Um, there was a, there was a woman who, who's, special needs kid had died the week before we had run her we had run the kid the week before and that was a traumatic call to begin with but then a week later we get called out to the house and she in her reaction her, that adopted uh, son who who died her reaction was to hang herself and she committed to that by she hung herself on the closet door so if you can think about that all she had to do was stand up that's all she had to do she could have stopped it by standing up but she was she was determined and that call that call sticks with me as well. It's just one of the it's those hangings. It's for some reason it just seems like well, first of all, it's obviously purposeful, but it's 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 that determination to finish it. And uh it started I think I went into this job with with this um anger towards suicide. Like why would you do that to yourself? You know, how weak are you for for doing that? This job has changed that around to where it doesn't become a why would you do that? It's it's a it's a realization of how sick people are to, and how they how they get into their brains about, oh, I'll be people will be better off without me if I, if I just get rid of myself. And so it'd be, once I just changed that thought process and realized that they actually think they're doing you a favor, then I, then I became a lot more compassionate towards people that with with those ideations and those and those thoughts. Um, and. I think that's key because it, it, it lends a little more compassion to the job than rather rolling up on scene going, what the fuck? Why do why would someone do this? Well, I mean, you just, you know, illustrated something that I realized I was educated upon the last six years, you know, slowly um, was that feeling of burdensome and that miswiring of the brain. We just had a yet another suicide in my city. Another firefighter took her own life last week and, uh, you know, just absolutely horrendous. But when you look at the compounding elements, I mean, we've talked about your early life where you take that and then you add sleep deprivation and you add some organizational stress and a broken down relationship. And, you know, maybe you're on psych meds and the side effects are compounding as well. And you're using alcohol to go to sleep. You have this vicious, you know, circle. There's this perfect storm. And at that moment, mm -hmm. you're already in a profession where you're willing to give up your life for a complete stranger. So now you believe your brain has you fucking tricked to believing that the world would be better off without you. Your kids, in your mind, would actually prefer mm -hmm. that dad wasn't around. And so then you do the selfless thing and take your own life. And so people look around and go, oh, it's so selfish. At that moment, I disagree. I think, you know, from what I understand from 700 plus people now, that at that moment, their brain has them so tricked that they truly believe that they are doing a selfless act by removing themselves from the only thing they know is reality, which is life, right. taking themselves out so that their family will be happier. A healthy brain looking on the outside, looking in knows, okay, that's the polar opposite effect. But we have to understand that these people, as you said, are sick. And I mean that in a positive, caring way. Right. Yeah. And I agree. It's, it is, they think they're doing a selfless thing. And, and unfortunately we, we all know it's not, it's it. And we're not, I'm not saying it's selfish either. I just, I think it's just their reaction to, to those stressors. And, and, um, 
you know, I think the key part to that, you said we're in a profession where, where you see that suicide. And I think that adds a layer to it because we've seen so many ways to kill yourself. And it's almost like you, you have the tools readily available because you've seen X, Y, and Z method of, of, of killing yourself. I, I spoke to someone who talked about, um, he saw killing himself with, um, with Freon, I believe it was, it was with the CPAP mask. And he's like, I have a CPAP mask. I can do this. And the only thing that saved his life was he was standing in line and the line at Walmart was too long that day. And he, and it's that lag between the, I'm going to do it and the action. He got lucky that that line was too long. And, and in that line, he went, wait, what the hell am I doing? And he put that gas back and he, and he walked out of there and went home and told his wife what he, what he was planning to do. Well, I mean, this is the, the thing as well with alcohol, you know, when you, when you think about it, and this, this is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek analogy, but it's true. How many people have people with when they've been drinking that when they wake up sober, they're like, fuck, <laughs> I never right. would have done that stone yeah. cold sober. Now take someone who's in right. pseudo crisis, that alcohol may be that little tiny bridge that they need between, no, I'm not going to do that. And where is my gun? And so often you find that right. someone's drank before they took their own life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I I think the the people that I've talked spoken to on my show who have been through a, through a suicide attempt or or just very serious ideations of suicide always talked about either their their prescription drug use with the alcohol or just the alcohol alone. And it's there's it's those two have always played a part in in their thought process. Well, going back to that PD call you had as well, I was ta- telling someone this the other day on the show. I can't remember who it was, but. I had a run of, of a couple of weeks where I had almost all my pediatric deaths in those two weeks. And every single one of those was abuse. I don't know if people realize how often that happens too, but I had a, you know, shaken baby that died a few years later. You know, he was, he was a five year old when I held him and he basically died in my arms. We had a, another one that was handed to you, you know, the moment the rescue pulls up and you're given this lifeless skin that ended up being. Yeah. You know, we thought it was SIDS and it was actually abuse. And then we had another one that supposedly had fallen out of a crib that was actually, you know, smashed to pieces by mother, father, whoever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. But like you said, that's another thing that people don't realize is not only do we have to do these life-saving interventions, sometimes we have to take a step back and go, well, f- was the person that just handed me this child the person who actually killed them? You know, so these are all right. the layers of trauma that a paramedic, a police officer, a firefighter, are exposed to in one single call. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that, and this is going to sound horrendous. It's amazing that more of us aren't, aren't thinking about these suicide, just the, the, the trauma, like you said, the layers of trauma we take on one call alone is, is intense. Absolutely. Well, so you enter the fire service, you, you know, you progress in a, in a very, very positive direction as far as the operational side. I think, you know, going to, to the mm-hmm. ladder company, which was my favorite rig to be on. And then ultimately, you know, rescue, um, which rescue that I ended up in, in Florida means you're running EMS calls the whole time, <laughs> but you know, you're talking about <laughs> the completely, completely, yeah, completely opposite. It's a heavy technical rescue squad that, that I'm on. Absolutely. So that's, that's the rescue people dream of being on, even though actually ultimately I, I would argue that you save the most lives on an EMS rescue. Um, I, well, I would argue that every call is an EMS call until it's not. Yes, that too. Absolutely. So you have this, you know, this incredible, 
roller coaster of a life up to this point. You enter the fire service. Walk me through, you know, now looking back, maybe where you started seeing some of the the challenges and where was the lowest place that you found yourself? Uh, if if you think about the challenges the, or what I, the reason I discovered or I came up with an idea for what I do with the show and talking to people, it was, it was 2020 2019 into 2020, early 2020, that um, we had five people, five firefighters, whether it be career volunteer, they have five firefighters in the Nova region, so the DMV, District of, District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia area, killed themselves within a span of one year. So that was five within this region. And the fifth one was was a guy who wasn't an active volunteer at the time, but he had been a volunteer firefighter in a, in a jurisdiction right next to mine. And I never met him, but I, I read the story and I was, I knew at that moment, I said, this, what the hell is going on? And I, everyone had heard this, the prevalence of suicide with firefighters, but when it hits that close to home and they're five, you know, five in, in that short span, you start thinking that somebody needs to start talking about that. And that's where the, that's the impetus for the show, at least. For my own personal, I, I've my lowest point came during the the demise of my marriage. Uh, unfortunately, my marriage didn't survive, and a lot of that has to do with me. I, I wasn't a perfect husband, and she wasn't a perfect wife, and we we clashed. Um, I never seriously considered suicide, but I was faced with the specter of somebody else uh, using suicide, and and I never want to feel that that feeling again. Um, so my lowest point came during that time when we were separated and I was, I was at work. I, I was walking around. It was like a, just a black cloud over my head. Um, I knew something was wrong with me. I knew that I needed to make some changes. I needed to, I needed to talk, but I, I was so resistant to it that it just took forever until uh, a buddy of mine spurred me on with, with, um, actually it's, you, you, you know, Travis house, uh, create your own light. Uh, my buddy gave me the book. He said, you need to read this. And so I read it. It was a, it was a, one of those books I picked up and I read half one day, half the next day. And it was like, Oh, okay. It's okay to, to talk to somebody. It's okay to reach out. It's okay to take care of yourself. And it wasn't until I read that book that I, that I, I was ready to admit to myself that I needed something other than just, you know, working out, going on bike rides, drinking alcohol, whatever it was. I needed I needed to take care of myself and I needed to find that proper outlet and that's where the therapy came in. So walk me through, what was the first thing that you tried and then were there any things that didn't work before you found the combination of things that did? The first therapy I tried was an online therapy because we obviously got COVID going on and she only did, she did virtual. I hated it. I, I, I did one session and I barely wanted to make it through the session. I didn't, I, maybe I didn't like her, but I know I didn't like the, the format and I, and I swore it off. I said, no, I, I can't do this. And it got to the point where I was living in my buddy's house. I was renting a room. Uh, I'm trying to grapple with the fact that I'm thinking that, okay, I mean, other than raising two kids, everything else I'd done seemed like a failure at that time because my marriage was falling apart. Uh, I couldn't seem to get out of my own way. Um, and I, I was sitting there and I, my buddy said, Hey, how are you doing? As soon as he asked how, how I was doing, I broke down into tears. I didn't know how to explain it because I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how I was doing. 
obviously I wasn't doing well. I wasn't, I wasn't succeeding. And uh, he said, you need to talk to somebody. And I said, I can't find anybody. And uh, he said, no, I've got somebody. And it was, it was the woman I see right now who is actually part of the fire department, but she's, she's separate. So she's employed by the County and she services the, the fire department for the mental health side of it. Um, I got lucky enough to get in and for, for me with her, we connected because she had the good sense of humor. She had, she was able to, to, to converse with me. I was able to converse with her. She was familiar with the fire service. She was familiar with some of the traumas that we see. And she wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't taken back by what we had to say to her. Well, that thing is one of the conversation, well, a couple of things that you hit on. Firstly, where do we find the help? That's one of the biggest issues. And I think this comes from the second point, which mm-hmm. is, I've had so many horror stories, so many EAP horror stories on here of people that yeah, that oh, made yes. worse. And then what terrifies me is, okay, these are the people right. that live to tell the tale. How many EAP horror mm-hmm. stories with the final nail in the coffin for a lot of people? Because we sat, they sat us down in front of the wrong people. And they have, you know, I've had a, a, right. a spectrum of, uh, of stories from people just bursting into tears, the counselors, through to literally being told mm-hmm. to get out. I can't help you. And you imagine what that does to someone right. who's close to crisis already. So those culturally competent right. clinicians, the one that truly understand how to work with military, police, fire, etc., are sadly, they're diamonds in the rough. And, and this is what I find at the moment. The, the stigma conversation, I think people have got it overall. It's the how do you mm. find the right person conversation that we're failing so miserably at the moment. Yes. Well, there's a there's a there's a lacking of, of qualified personnel. First of all, with with COVID, it, you saw such an explosion in people getting services, and then you had limited time for in person meetings. And so now, even if you find a point, well, even if you find a, a therapist, they're probably not going to have openings. And I, I got lucky. I, I honestly can say I just got lucky. I didn't go through EAP because of the horror stories I've heard of EAP. I didn't talk to peer support because of the horror stories I've heard about peer support. It, my decision, I didn't want to do either one of those things. Uh, the piece that I say she's employed through the county is it's a center that we call the Resilience Center. And that's what they are. They have therapists there for the cops, for, for firefighters, for, for all the first responders. And they do they do station visits but they also do one-on-one sessions and i i literally just got lucky to find an appointment with her and and i've been able to see her every week since then now are there any tools that she uses that you have found have worked whether it's like emdr or some of the other the therapies that people offer we did emdr a couple of times and it was effective for those those couple times we haven't done much of it so i'm a i'm i have a loose familiarization with it um, for me, it's just the fact that I'm allowed to to be honest with her and and tell her what's going on. I'm not judged for what's going on, and I have a conversation about it. And and she's she plays some mind tricks, you know. She she'll turn it around, and and I know she's giving me the answer, but I also know that she she wants me to come up with that answer. She wants me to come up with that realization of what I'm doing to to better myself and better that mental health aspect. Uh, the, the most important part for me with her was the work that I did with her with my marriage and my, my dad, how both things have affected me throughout life uh, and how, yeah, well, that's happened and it's, it's, it's a part of me. It's not who I am. It's not what I am. Like the mistakes I've made aren't what, who I am. Those are just mistakes and you can move past those mistakes or the, the things that were done to me weren't who I am. 
is also just something you 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 can move past. You can you can learn to live life and still acknowledge them. Now, what about psychedelics? I've had so many people on here, especially members of the the SEAL community. In fact, when we talked before we hit record, I'm about to go on this round the world trip with you know, a bunch of these uber tactical athletes and so many of them have been to the same retreat down in uh, Mexico, have I got that right? Um, with the psilocybin and ibogaine retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about your exposure to plant medicine. Uh, well, first of all, in my county, obviously uh, psychedelics aren't, aren't, aren't smiled upon by, by, the, by the firefighting community, especially by my department. Um, However, we do have access to cannabis now because our county attorney refused to fire people based on cannabis use because Virginia has employee protections for use of cannabis. Uh, <clears throat> we can't smoke cannabis, but we can we can use it in any other form other than smoking. Uh, so I'm, I'm obviously a proponent of, of cannabis. That's something that I've, I've supported throughout both my experiences on Instagram. I have another, I have the things we all carry is obviously one page on Instagram, but I also do the objectionables on Instagram. And that was cannabis was a big part of that page. Uh, psychedelics is another big part of what I would like to see available to firefighters. I would like to, I think that any therapy that works for you is what you need to use. Um, I'm a huge, huge supporter of the fact that, you know, ketamine, uh, psilocybin, LSD, all of those have, have proven clinical clinical efficacy and efficiency, and I think both all of those need to be in that toolbox for us to use. Um, I'm not saying go out and take three grams of, of mushrooms today. I'm, what I'm advocating for is a guided form of therapy. Uh, so you have a therapist who's who has experience in in psychedelics and uses those psychedelics as a tool, but then the, then takes you through a session and guides you through that session while you're on the psychedelic. I had a guy on uh, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's uh, a doctor in uh, Bristol, close to where I grew up in England, um, and they are doing a, a huge amount of uh, MDMA-led therapy research. And again, sadly, yeah. you have to be part of the study to participate. And if you're not, then yeah. I've got a, a childhood friend that's struggling immensely, and I wish I could just plop him into that study. I think he'd do incredibly well. But I think what really makes so much sense to me is we know you know, your your podcast is called The Things That We Carry, and a lot of those things are buried and locked tight. And so sometimes it's yeah. I think it's simply the psilocybin, the ibogaine, the you know, MDMA, the ketamine is just unlocking those boxes. Now, as you said, doesn't mean if you just go go out and do a bunch of drugs, you're not gonna wake up the next day mentally sound. You need to have that right. journey as well, that you open that box now with your therapist, with your counselor, with your shaman, with whoever it is that's there for the for the journey with you. Now you have the ability to start unpacking what you just discovered buried deep below. Yeah, and I think that's the, the setting is very important. The setting and also where your head is before you go into something like that. <clears throat> if you're in a negative headspace going into it, it's probably not going to be effective to begin with. Um, excuse me. It's just, it's just the way that those, that medicine works. Um, I think that again, that guided aspect is very important. Um, I wish it was available to all firefighters, all cops, anybody. I wish it was something that could be prescribed. Now you've interviewed a lot of people through your podcast. You know, you've obviously got the, the exposure to people, whether they're on the mic or not. Um, 
what are some of the the myths that you see in first responder mental health and what are some of the progressive and maybe we've touched on some of them progressive tools that are available that are starting to emerge now i think a myth is that i mean i've said it for myself i don't i don't need anything i can do this on my own i don't i don't care how strong you are in this in this job you need to talk to somebody you need to have an outlet you can't you can't keep it all in it will come back to haunt you no matter what at some point it's going to come back to haunt you um that myth of the stigma and i've had that one reframe for me as well um i used to think that that stigma meant that other people would look poorly upon you but i think that stigma is a personal thing i think that is as long as you can do away with the stigma for yourself no one is going to judge you for for seeking help i no one judges you for going to the gym why would they judge you for going to to a mental health counselor it doesn't make sense to me. And it's the same thing. You go to a doctor to prevent you. You go to a dentist to help your teeth. Go to go to a doctor, go to a therapist to help your brain. You, we see way too much. We we hear so much. We need a spot to get rid of those. Get rid of what we what we experience. Well, let me reframe the, the second part of that conversation. I didn't put it or the questions. I didn't put it okay. very well. What would you like to see in that toolbox available for first responders? Oh, I like, I love to see, I give an example that I give quite often. We had a crew, um, an engine medic crew, engine and medic went to a, a infant CPR one morning. It was, we started at zero six in the morning. I think this call went out at zero six oh one. So first thing right off the bat. And it was a, I think it was a, maybe, a, maybe a year old baby, maybe not even that old. They did CPR on this baby for 30 minutes and the baby didn't make it. Um, that's a, that's a traumatic call. You know, and it's a, that's a brain injury in my in my opinion. I, for, so that's one thing. Let's label these things what they are. Those are brain injuries. So if you're injured, let's get you taken care of. So in my, I would like to see that crew offered whatever therapy works for them, whether it be talk therapy, whether it be EMDR, whether it be um, psychedelics, whether it be whatever it is, whatever they need to get over that trauma for themselves personally, they should be offered that almost immediately after that call. They should be given a relief crew and it should be worked on. So they, there should be a filling crew that can come to that station, take care of, of what needs to be done. They should be offered some time off and that chance to use whatever therapy is, is effective for them. That, that's, is that going to happen? Probably not because you, you have, you have parameters. It's hard to get a crew to fill in. It's hard to get therapy that quickly. But ideally, I would like to see it dealt with almost immediately before they have a time to index it improperly in their brain. When I started this podcast, I was amazed first at the courage and vulnerability of some of the guests, um, but secondly, the, again, the, the, the trauma, the stories that some of these men and women have, whether it's in the fire service or, as I mentioned before, prior or, or post as well. Were there any guests or moments in, in some of the interviews that you've had that really stuck with you? Oh, I think, <laughs> I think there's a piece of everyone's story that sticks with me. And there's a piece of everyone's story that I interviewed that, that I go, oh, that's me. Oh, that, I have that. Um, if we go way back when, like, uh, first episode, there's a gentleman out of Utah. His name is Chris Monroe. Um, uh, and he has no problem with me sharing his name. He was very open about his, his story. He, he saw so much stuff and, and he has seen so much throughout his career that I marvel at how he's hasn't 
how he hasn't, um, first of all, killed himself and he hasn't, and he has, he remains in the, in the business and he remains strong in the business. Uh, his, his story just, you think it's going to get better and it just keeps going. There's, there's, there's one after the other, after the other. And it just, it just is amazing that it piled on and he was able to deal with it appropriately. Um, there was another gentleman from New Jersey who the one that sticks with me from him is he, they responded to a trash fire on, um, in New Jersey, got there and it wasn't a trash fire. A, a woman had given birth to a baby on the side of the road, didn't decide she didn't want it and had dipped it, had, had doused it in like, I don't know what it was and then lit it on fire. So it's like, I don't know how you deal with something like that. And, and he, it took him years to deal with that. Um, I think that there's, there's stories of childhood traumas that led up to, I think there's a, there's a, there's a common thread with first responders. There's, there's quite often some childhood trauma in almost everybody I've spoken to. And it's been interesting to find that part, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect, it, it doesn't matter. There's, there's been something there. And it's interesting to see how you almost start to think, are we helpers because of this? Or were we helpers be before that? Any, and we would have done this anyway. I don't know because it's hard to make that uh, correlation or causation uh, connection. But it's very interesting to see that there's oh, there's a commonality there of quite often of some kind of childhood trauma. Well, I want to put one more question to you before we go to some closing questions. Something that I've talked about a lot, and I'm sure I, I can't remember now, but I'm sure I blabbed about it for a while in, in your podcast, um, is the impact of sleep deprivation on our mental health. Yeah. So yes. what, what is your work week in your department? Oh, my work week is basically a 72-hour work week. They call it a 56, but if you're honest about it, it's a 72. We work day on, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, and then we get four off. Um. It's it's a terrible schedule. I'll be honest with you. We went we went from a twenty four forty eight with a Kelly to that schedule. Uh, there were some reasons why they did it. Whether the reasons were were valid or not, uh, it's neither here nor there. I think that what they're what the schedule is doing to our people in the department is despicable. I think that um, we've seen increased BMI. We've seen increased accidents. We've seen increase in sick sick leave usage. And I can tell you what you talk to people in stations. People, their mental health is being affected by this, uh, whether it's just because they're angry all the time or what. It doesn't matter. That's a mental health issue. Um, and I think you and I have talked about it, this, that, that the reason that they're doing something like this and that you have mandatory holdover and you have staffing shortages is more of a, a failure of management than, than a lack of desire to do the job. And part of that is that schedule. I know that this job will require you to go out on calls no matter what. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is. So you're going to lose sleep there. But to go 24 on, 24 off, three in a row like that is is so detrimental to a body. It's ridiculous. Um, I was just talking to uh, one of my medics yesterday at work. And I said, I said, you know, there's a couple of calls. That I, wear a, I wear a Garmin and a Whoop on my the health trackers on my wrist. And. I had, I had driven for her as a, as our medic driver a couple of times. And we had gone out on call say two 30 in the morning. I said, you, do you realize that when I checked my data the next day, it didn't register me as awake. I was like, I'm driving your unit and we're going on calls, but it registered me as sleeping still because I'm just so tired. And 
or you're getting the opposite where you're going out on a house fire at two in the morning and your your heart rate spiking up from say 45 to 120 in, in a matter of seconds. Uh, that sleep deprivation, some of that you can't avoid, but the schedule you can avoid. If you want to put some money out and uh, outlay of cash in the in the front end and make a different schedule, something you talk about quite often is that twenty four seventy two. That little bit of cash in the on the front end is going to pay off in the long run immensely. So why we don't do that, I think, is just because politicians want to be want to appear fiscally responsible and aren't willing to put their name to something and and not see the benefits for years down the road. But sleep deprivation, I think, is I think that's the most pressing issue in in the fire department today. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. I think that that quote that I always butcher that plant a seed or plant a tree under which the shade you will never know. And again, I've just totally annihilated right. that. So I'm sorry to anyone who ever came up with that. But I love that concept is that mm-hmm. imagine if you're doing something that you're not going to reap the benefits from. Isn't that exactly ultimately right. what every kind of core of every religion around the planet is really about and yet we have these people that tout you know coming out of their church or the synagogue or whatever that won't even do that for the people that work for them you know to protect their own physical Mm -hmm. and mental health and as you said the irony is you will actually save your department a shitload of money if you just have the fucking balls to look at it long term economically, but this whole right. shackle to the budget year, so you like a rock star, is the enemy of of you know so much. Not just in the fire service, in in the country. Yeah, and and like it's, it's politicians. It, that's all it is. It's politicians want want the the benefit now, so you think they want to look fiscally responsible. So the fiscal fiscally responsible thing to do is not put that outlay of cash. And like, if you really want long-lasting notoriety or or to be remembered as making a difference long down the road, switching a schedule like that and saving lives and saving money is the way to do it. You know, you will have uh, that that department that does that becomes automatically the, one of the most progressive in the in the country. You get twenty four seventy two, maybe the use of cannabis. Let's 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 start talking about psychedelics. I know that that's a touchy thing because most people don't even want cannabis in their in their departments right now. But you start talking about some of this holistic thinking, so the plant-based medicines and and talk, talking about diet and fitness and taking care of your firefighters and and maybe putting some teeth behind um, diet and fitness. So there's some parameters where people have to stay healthy for this job. So we're not we're not losing people to heart attacks when they're 40 years old. Well, I mean, look at it retroactively. Imagine if we had a president of whatever party that they were a part of that during the COVID pandemic pushed, you know, clean nutrition, pushed exercise. Yes. Because I don't know if you realize this. I just did some research because I was watching everyone just get brutalized by this latest flu strain. And since September, we've lost 50,000 people to the flu. That isn't on any of the news stations anywhere because it will only no. prove what we were saying, the health community was saying during COVID, right. is that yes, this virus is real, real, but the reason why we're losing so many people is because so many Americans are sick. Nothing got changed. Mental health is getting worse. Obesity is getting worse. Che- you know, pediatric obesity is getting worse. Cancer rates are getting worse. And we're losing more mm-hmm. people. So when we look back, who was a good leader? Neither of them. 
They were both fucking awful. Right. And this is the problem. Right. And, you know, three years, we're probably going to have another one again. Hopefully not one of the previous ones we already had. But, you know, it's yeah, we right. have to have these people that are investing in this country. And if we have a mental health crisis, we have fentanyl murdering men, women, and children. You know, we have all these people, you know, that are woefully overweight. That's That's in itself is something that we need to invest in. And that will then carry over to so many other areas, including, which people forget, national security, which includes police, fire, and EMS. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was walking through the grocery store the other day at work, and I, I looked at my buddy and I said, you know, if we get attacked, <laughs> we're doomed. Because everyone is, is, and I don't mean everyone, but there's a lot of lazy and soft out there and it's we've become accustomed to a way of life that is is not going to do well for a protection of a country and protection of, of ourselves absolutely and it's just you know it's not it's not just whining and bitching it's like coming from a place of kindness and compassion and i always highlight this for people when you have this fat shaming conversation or and you know anti-fat shaming and real fat shaming shouldn't be a thing that's just being a dick but you know you use no, that as an excuse to stop people from you know being educated and inspired to lose weight and eat better where you and me and all the other men and women listening that are in uniform are the people that see those men and women at the end and there's mm -hmm. nothing fucking beautiful at all about sticking a tube down a 46-year-old man or woman's no. you know, throat that basically had half of their lifespan robbed from them because they were told lies their whole life. We, we um, At the height of COVID, I remember going to a, a call. It was a small little house, and, and they said, we got two guys in the back, difficulty breathing, COVID positive. And we, uh, you know, it was at that time where everyone was worried and you kind of, People were still dressing in suits and, and full-on respirators. And, and it was just the, the hyperbole of, of COVID at the time. Um, they, two of our guys go in with a stair chair to get one of the patients out and get back into the room. And he's 450 pounds. And he's, and he's the son. And he's only like 20 years old at 450 pounds. And he's, he's very obviously dying. You can hear it and you can tell it. But there's two guys who are trying to lift a 450 man, a 450 pound man into a stair chair and bring him out of a tiny house, which we had to make wider. In the, we had to make the, the deck wider. We had to cut the rails off because we couldn't move him. And then to bring the dad out as well. And he's also 400 pounds. And, you know, you can hear it in their breath and you can hear it. You can see it in their face. And sure enough, the next day, both of them are dead because it's not because of COVID. It was because of their, their obesity. And all the underlying health health problems, the comorbidities are outrageous. And so, yeah, sure, the flu is going to kill fifty thousand people. The flu is a doozy. I had the flu before Christmas, and and it took a month to get rid of the cough. And I'm I'm relatively healthy. I'm not in the best shape ever, but I'm relatively healthy. But it it kicked my ass. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just an important point. And again, whether I'm speaking to someone in London or Stockholm or you know South Africa. It's all the same observation. And obviously some of those countries there, their people are actually a lot healthier. But, you know, if there's no better, you know, voice to me than the health of a nation, then it's first responders. I mean, you could argue obviously doctors and mm -hmm. nurses, but really we're the ones that see where right. these people live, you know, what they're driving, you know, how they're treating their children, their spouses, et cetera. So, you know, and sadly, we just don't hear these voices. So it's so important that we do. Yes, I agree with that. All right. Well, I'd love to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. 
All right. All right. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to our discussion or completely unrelated. Well, I'm going to go with a book that I'm, I just finished and it's a guest of mine and her name is Allie Rothrock. And she was a volunteer firefighter in Pennsylvania. And her experience as a 16-year-old woman going into the fire service and trying to find her way as a volunteer and, and not being welcomed into the fire service and and almost being well she was a threatening uh presence to the to the male dominated volunteers in that area and they made her life a living hell to include um threats and attempts to sabotage your gear and and so on uh her book is called after trauma and she's written a couple of books but the first the one i've just finished reading is called after trauma and She's taken this this experience and she she never gave up on her dream to be a firefighter. She's been 17 years as a volunteer firefighter now, but she's also taken what's happened to her and she's gone into trauma counseling for herself. And she's she has a few great programs that she runs to include for firefighters uh, and and law enforcement talking about trauma. And like I said, her name is Allie Rothrock and the book is fantastic. Um, and then I'm. Um, on a selfish point, I'm a huge Hunter S. Thompson fan. So anything by Hunter S. Thompson is worth reading. Beautiful. What about a movie and or documentary that you love? Ooh, that's going to be tough because I, I very rarely watch movies. Um, Got to think back to a documentary. Uh, that's never mind. It's the Anthony Bourdain story. On um, It's on. I've watched it on Amazon and I, um, no boundaries. Is what I believe is what it's called, but it's the Anthony Bourdain story. And uh, if I had to identify someone as a spirit animal of mine, Anthony Bourdain is, is pro probably my spirit animal. So it's a fascinating look into a, a very troubled mind, but a very fascinating human being. I remember watching that and you look at the workload that he had. And again, going, mm -hmm. I wonder if sleep deprivation was a compounding element in his life. Too. Yes. Right. Yeah. And obviously, substance abuse didn't didn't help him either. No, absolutely not. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes, actually. And it's somebody I'm going to interview very shortly. Her name is Jenny Gregory. She's a she's a traumatologist out of the Seattle area. Um, she have you heard of the movie The Call We Carry? I have. Was it what just came out recently? It's a yes. Yeah, a Tacoma a Tacoma firefighter made the movie, and it's a fascinating. We, this this is a very interesting story because he and I, our my show and his movie were being worked on at the same time, and then we crossed paths, and it was very ironic that it's very similar in name and in 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 uh, substance. He's he was asked to do a um, five to seven minute video on his uh, on the excuse me, I'm drawing uh, the peer support group in his, in his department. And he started interviewing people and started this filming. And he realized there's no way I can do this in five to seven minutes. This is a movie. And so he, he interviews members of his department and Jenny Gregory is the counselor that works with his department. And like I said, she's a traumatologist, but she also works with, for example, I think after I interview her, she's headed to, um, I'm going to get it wrong now, Sierra Leone to, to do some more work with the soldier, the children's soldiers. Uh, yeah. So she, she has vast experience with, with trauma, be it 
children's soldiers, first responders, military. She's a very fascinating person. And I, like I said, I'm going to, I have her coming on the show, but I think she'll be an asset to, to anybody on any show. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate that. And I certainly won't reach out till she's been on yours. <laughs> <laughs> I record tomorrow with her. So you, you got it. So you'll have it. I'm recording this afternoon. I'm putting it straight out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find your site, your your podcast. What do you do to decompress these days? <sighs> Good question. I, I got away from decompressing quite a bit. Um, and that's something that, that has gotten away from me a little bit. So um, I'm, there's another there's another gentleman I'm going to talk to tomorrow. And he's he's one of the things he's doing this summer is the race across America. And so cycling is a big thing for me. I, I'm a cyclist because obviously I can't run that well with this club foot of mine. Um, so cycling is, is one of my tools. Cycling, working out, reading, um, it, cooking and music actually help, it help as well. So I, I try, to, try to do a little bit of all of it and I need to get better at doing more of it. Brilliant. All right, mate. Well, then the very last thing, if people want to find you, want to find the podcast, where are the best places online? Uh, Instagram is probably the best. I, I run two Instagram pages at the objectionables and then at the things we all carry. Uh, and then there's a website for the things we all carry. It's the things we all carry.com and you can find the shows there and you can find links there. Uh, and if you have a story you want to share with me and you want to share with my audience, it's my story at the things we all carry.com. And that's, I have people reach out to me, share a little bit of it, and then I connect with them, and, and that's where the shows come from. Beautiful. Well, Stack, I just want to say thank you. Um, it's, it's amazing to speak to another podcast, especially someone who's in the fire service who also identified you know, that there was a mental health issue. And as I'm sure as you've seen, as you unpack this whole problem, it's, you know, it's physical, it's mental, it's you know, all these different layers. But we are seeing that there's an issue but the more voices the more pieces of this kind of tapestry that we put together the greatest reach that we're going to have so i want to thank you firstly for for you know getting into the fire service somewhat later in your your life and still grabbing that torch and running with it when it comes to improving you know everything in the fire service but also for taking the time and coming on the behind the shield podcast today well, I want to thank you because without the conversation we had, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, I wouldn't have been a podcaster. So you, you, you took some time with me. You gave me some in, some do's and don'ts with it. And you were more than, you welcomed me more with open arms that more than I ever deserved. And so I appreciate that without the conversation we had, the show wouldn't have been possible. Um, so I thank you very much for having me on the show and I love what you're doing. I, I, I look forward to your episodes every, every time they come out. <laughs>